Hello and welcome to the World of Mouth podcast, where we share the stories of the world's best chefs and restaurateurs and their favorite destinations to travel and eat. My name is Kenneth Nars and I'm the creative director of World of Mouth, a platform that connects more than 600 restaurant experts who share their favorite restaurants, from the best place for a pizza slice, a taco or hamburger, to the latest must-visit new fine dining restaurant opening. Today we're meeting Ben Shuri, the chef and owner of Attica in Melbourne. He grew up on a remote sheep and cattle farm in Taranaki, a mountainous coastal region of the west coast of New Zealand's North Island. Shuri arrived in Melbourne in 2002 and worked with chefs like Andrew McConnell. He became the head chef at Attica in 2005 and five years later made the world's 50 best restaurant list. Ben Shuri also featured in the first season of Netflix Chef's Table series. We'll hear Ben Shuri tell about the responsibility of a chef and restaurant owner regarding supporting your staff your producers and your local community. At the end of the podcast, he will reveal his favorite restaurants in Australia and the rest of the world. You'll also find these places in the World of Mouth app. Please tell me, who is Ben Shuri? Uh, well, it's funny, Kenneth, because yesterday I was asked to write a bio of myself. Um, and so I find bio so boring and sort of just so self-serving. So I just decided that I would make a, a sort of lists of what I am and what I'm not and what I try not to be um, and what I try to be. Um, okay. And just one single word list. So I guess what I am uh, is a husband, father, um, son, um, <clears throat> brother, and the owner and the chef of Attica Restaurant in Melbourne. Those are facts. Um and and then um, I guess what I try not to be uh, is a jerk, pretty much, um, and, and that has many different definitions. But uh, try not to be mean. Try not to be egotistical or too <clears throat> too egotistical, um, or not egotistically out of control. Uh, but uh, and when I say when I no, don't be mean, don't be mean to to your staff, to your customers, to the environment, uh, and to the community. In terms of what um, I, I try to be, you know, I try to be honest and direct, um, try to be kind, um, and, you know, and I say try because, you know, we don't always, we not, none of us are perfect and we don't always meet, you know, our own obligations, but uh, we shouldn't beat ourselves up if we fail. We should just kind of own own our mistakes and try to move forward. Perhaps apologize and try to move forward. So that's kind of how how I live. Um, probably the other thing that that I absolutely am is incredibly passionate um, and quite obsessive. Um, but the obsession is a choice. So um, yeah. I just follow things that I love in the arts, music, culture, uh, environment, um, and all of these things influence and are imbibed into the restaurant experience at Attica. They're a central part that they give it a much bigger life outside of the four walls of the restaurant and even a much bigger feature perhaps than, than just a place to come to eat. Um, you know, they are sort of living with with the restaurant and moving with it and there's a whole community of people 
in Australia and also some international people who who help us with that, you know, I guess collaborators and friends. Um, and that that group of people and uh, artists and musicians and makers and writers and and people have have some of them have been with us for the entire existence of Attica, which is 18 years. Um, and some are new and, um, and I, but I find that experience of working with other creative people incredibly replenishing. Um, so we're always remaining curious and interested in, in the culture and, and, and what people are doing. Um, so fascinating. People are so fascinating. And we live in a very, very diverse, um, community here in Melbourne, Australia, uh, you know, because you've visited and, um, and I like the restaurant to sort of, you know, be influenced by that culture and the waves of migration that have come here since the invasion by the English. But, but mostly I love to, I love to be inspired by the culture of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here in Australia. It's a very ancient culture. It goes back ten, many tens of thousands of years um, and in essence forever. Uh, so that food and those ingredients um, connected to those, these people here it's just a, a wonderful vibrant um unique ancient living culture and you would you know you'd have to be living under a rock to not find that inspirational if you're a cook in this country we have mm -hmm. more than eight thousand edible native ingredients here in australia we don't exist anywhere else um we have only examined a few hundred of them commercially probably but um there's just such depth and and um such a sense of possibility here um, that I find remarkable. And you actually, uh, you said coming here because you actually, you are not originally from, from Australia. You come from New Zealand. Is that right? No, no, that's right. Uh, yeah, originally, uh, born, bred, um, in New Zealand in a, in a, not even a town, in a, in a backcountry place, in a farming community, in a rural environment, in, in quite a lot of isolation and very, very humble circumstance um, uh, with, very, uh, with very little um, money, but a lot of love in our household. Um, and also, you know, food really being the most significant part of our upbringing in a lot of ways, you know, family and food. And uh, my father, and my mother, but my father particularly was a sheep and cattle farmer. So most of the time there was sort of, there was quite a lot of meat, um, not very particularly good meat. My dad was a terrible butcher. Um, and then my mother was a school teacher. And, and so we lived in areas where, where there was a lot of wild. So the wild also fed us, whether it's sort of berries or plants, but particularly wild shellfish from the coastline, the north coast of the west coast of sorry the west coast of New Zealand and um, and so these things sustained us as lo as well as my parents' significant vegetable garden but not out of not in any kind of modern interpretation of that not any chefy sort of foraging type of thing just as a way of living a ne necessary way of living and feeding yourself um, and my parents kind of applied some sort of ethos to that largely unspoken but nonetheless and it's more you know around respecting nature and not taking more than you need to eat. So there's a very like clear uh, demarcation in my childhood. You didn't hunt for sport. You hunted because you needed to feed yourself. And when you did hunt, uh, 
you know, when you took the life of an animal, uh, you showed it respect um, and didn't take it for granted, you know. So um, that was my childhood. My mum is a fantastic cook um, and I have a lot of, you know, incredibly happy memories from my childhood. You know, like I say, we we weren't rich uh, in money, in monetary value, but we were rich in, in family spirit um, and love. We're just very, very fortunate. It's such a gift to have a remarkable childhood like that. From New Zealand, uh, when you, did you decide to, to move uh, elsewhere? Uh, when I was 25... Uh, I Australia for New, for a lot of New Zealanders is the sort of natural calling. New Zealanders don't have a lot of options to go and live in elsewhere. Um, basically, it was England and Australia, and Australia was more appealing. Uh, so I moved to Australia when I was 25, and I actually moved here to pursue cooking a traditional Thai food, um, which is kind of an unorthodox path. You know, my whole cooking career is very unorthodox, especially if you would compare it to sort of the usual suspects in the lineup of people considered the world's greatest chefs or whatever that means. You know, um, my cooking background was sort of this two years when I was 16, full-time study, rigorous training by French and Swiss tutors. Now, that might sound normal, but in New Zealand it definitely wasn't. It was very intense. Um, and from there, I, I went to cook in very, very modest places, bars, uh, hotels. I cooked a lot of buffets, a lot of like really basic food um, until I was basically 21 or 22. And I worked for a really significant New Zealand chef called Mark Limaker at the Roxburgh Bistro. Mark now owns um, the quite spectacular Ortega Fish Shack in Wellington, New Zealand. It's a great seafood restaurant. Uh, he he's a true hospitality professional, and he's the first person. Him and his his wife Helen were the first people to kind of show me what was up, really up with cooking. You know, uh, he was very direct, very produce focused, and from there, after working for him, it gave me the kind of confidence to move to Australia um, and pursue this sort of new love that I discovered for Thai food. Um, upon landing in Melbourne, um, I realised that Sydney really had it all had all the Thai food, so it was, it was pretty silly. It was a pretty silly um, uh, mistake. Um, so I never, I've never really cooked Thai food in Melbourne. But I, but I, I guess you could say that like the best way of describing kind of what was happening at that time was that you know for a chef, um, it's not like it's not necessarily like being a doctor or being, you know, like a scholar where you, where you, where there's a lot of different types of trainings that you can enter, um, formal education and you can do your basic degree in, in whatever, and then go in a different direction in cooking. It's not like that, you know, you might get your base qualification or you might do your apprenticeship, but then your learning is completely, you know, self-based learning. And the the you know the potential that you have is really down to the effort that you will put in. And I've never been somebody that followed other people very much. So I you know I have this kind of diverse and unusual food education that formed what the food at Attica would eventually become. Um, so I found French food kind of um, flat. I suppose, you know, I like love to eat French food. I like to go to France. I like to eat in restaurants. I just don't want to cook it. Um, but I found it flat and suffocated by, you know, by dairy. And 
Thai food was the opposite of that. It was electrifying. It is electrifying. It, it's balanced. It's acidic, but it's never at the detriment of the food. Um, and so this sort of, I really learned this incredible amount about seasoning from from Thai cooks and from David Thompson, the um, great Australian chef. And, um, and when and you so worked for him? When I came to... Oh, I didn't work for David. I, 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 um, I did uh, work experience with him for six weeks in London in around about 2003. And he sort of mentored me post that as well. You know, it was really amazing what he did for me. Very, very generous. You know, he was just so willing and free with his knowledge um, and so encouraging. You know, it's pretty rare, um, especially as I wasn't a full-time member of staff. I was just a, you know, stagiaire, if you like, working there every day mm. and for six weeks. It it was a really... But that was a very important moment for me. Um, but eventually, a couple of years later, when, you know, I was sort of forced to become a head chef for the first time because I had an infant son who was six months old and I couldn't afford to live... I took a head chef job. I'd been a sous chef in a good restaurant <clears throat> in town uh, with a really great Melbourne chef called Andrew McConnell, who's now arguably the most successful restaurateur in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and um, I worked for Andrew for a couple of years, and then I started at Attica. And I guess kind of what I what I wanted to do more than anything was kind of represent my own creativity in cooking in, in a restaurant. And I didn't want to bastardize Thai cuisine because you know it didn't need any improvement from me. Uh, well, it wasn't possible for me to improve it, so I left it really. But but the influences of it, you know, they lingered, and they the especially the balance and the understanding of seasoning uh, between salty and and sweet and sour um, and freshness, which is something you can't learn from French cooking. You know, I don't care what anybody says. You know, so this unusual path in a lot of ways, whilst it's not like, you know, it's not like hitting the big ones like at the time would have been our bully and the French laundry and maybe a three star in, in France. Um, it was much more humble than that. But I would say it made for a more unpredictable cooking style because mm -hmm. of it, you know, and that cooking style would become representative of where I'm from you know, eventually. Not better or worse than anybody else, Kenneth, but but unique to where where I am, you know, which is in a different part of the world than than Europe, you know, and, and in fine dining, if you like, or ambitious cooking, you're, you, the whole universe is so Eurocentric that it was really important for me as a young cook to not really represent that because it didn't speak to our culture so much, you know? Eighteen years now, your restaurant. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Uh, tell me, how did uh, the first steps of, of of that restaurant? How did it start? Well, you know, like all the first steps of every restaurant, maybe that came before with any person that had ambition. It's completely terrifying. You know, um, I've I've sort of written about it in some detail, and it's quite hard to revisit that the beginning. Um, coming here with my best friend, Jason, who was my sous chef, just the two of us and two people on the floor. And Attica as a restaurant was already, it already existed, but is nothing that was identifiable now. You know, in fact, it was just, just a building, the same building that it is with the same name, but that is the only connection to what was here before me, which had run for about a year and a half and had originally been a Middle Eastern styled menu and then sort of English, uh, French, I think, 
Um, and we came in, um, it was failing chronically. We came in and I was 27 years old and sort of filled with, you know, enthusiasm and, and some bravado and, you know, and wanted to, you know, I guess like a lot of people that age wanted to kind of, you know, change the world with your cooking or something. I'm not sure, you know, but I didn't understand my, my own level of ambition at all. You know, I had no grasp of it. All I wanted to do was my own thing. Um, I wanted to make something that was unique, that spoke about my interests as a person, my history as a cook, as a cook, but also what the country could be, you know, what this, what, what cooking in a restaurant could be, you know, in Australia, we're really lucky because we've had um, this great lineage of cooks and restaurateurs that came before my generation and really helped pave the path for a restaurant like Attica to even exist or survive. And I like to say that that path was there, but I repaved it, you know, in my own way, you know. So I took the work that people like Stephen Alexander, Neil Perry, Chong Lu, um, Maggie Beer, uh, Tetsuya, um, these legends of um, Australian cooking and restaurants, you know, these heroes. And without them, you know, there is no Attica, there is no real ambitious restaurant because they had to spend a lot of many, many years and the people that came before them as well, educating the public about why, why restaurants matter. Um, and so um, I, I, was, I would say, I'm, you know, I'm born into a very fortunate time. You know, um, and and we've taken our own path, and we we need to educate our community about why what we do matters as well. It's not like you just you know handing handing over the reins and running with it, um, because I'm in a really different generation than those people that I admire so much. Um, but um, but it was it was terrifying because you know I wasn't very good. I was 27, and I couldn't meet my own ambitions, so. You know, I was frustrated all the time. <clears throat> I also didn't know what my style would be yet because realistically, you're not going to know anything about style, your personal style, until you're in your mid-30s or maybe older. It just can't happen earlier because you just don't have the experience. You know, no matter kind of what you say, it will be derivative on some level. You know, you'll be looking at other people or you'll be it'll be an influence of all your significant mentors. And, you know, I can see that now in cooking, um, but people need to be patient, you know, when they're cooking like cooks, you know, they need to take the time. Uh, I became a head chef too young, but it was out of necessity. You know, there was no other way. I didn't even want to really, but uh, mm. um, yeah. And so once the ball started rolling, you know, it's hard to stop. Because I was working insane hours, in working 100 hours a week, you know, we were washing our own dishes, my fingers were bleeding under the nails. You know, it, it was visceral, intense. We were on the edge of bankruptcy often and sort of always year to year. Uh, there was this impending doom, but I just couldn't give up on it. You know, I just, I don't know, I found something that I love to do. And when you find something that you truly adore and that you truly love... It's such a vastly powerful thing, you know. Um, and then I guess after a decade of working for somebody else here from 2005 to 2015, in 2015 I achieved, you know, something that seemed impossible to me um, and to many of us in our industry, many cooks and waiters, and that is to become the owner of my own restaurant outright without any partners, um, without any big money. Uh, I bet, you know, I had a, I had a, 
a very modest house um, with a mortgage and I bet the equity on the business to that's what got it done I took a loan out I, I used my house as leverage as collateral so if the business failed then I lose my house um, and that gives you motivation on another level you know uh, it's real serious then you know when there's no big money behind you and no investors it's completely different it's not even the same sort of restaurant you know, and nobody can tell me otherwise because I've got that experience with that, you know, sitting with that discomfort and that fear, you know, for somebody who has a big wealthy investor, they can just fold the restaurant any time they want really, you know, there's still consequences, people still get hurt, but like it's different when it's, when it's yours yeah. because if you don't come from money like I didn't um, and like a lot of us don't, if it, if it goes under, you might never recover, you know, so... You know, it's it's intense, um, and I've learned to live with that responsibility. You know, uh, but I've also set up our business in a way that I think is kind of the most responsible that I can muster. You know, in terms of fairness and payments and working conditions and the hours that the staff work and and what they get paid and how the suppliers get paid and how we interact with people. You know. Um, mm. I guess the kind of core philosophy there is that I think that, you know, the best companies, the ones that I admire, and this is really talking about outside of our industry, are the ones that don't just take from the culture, but they, they give back to it. They support community and they're involved in society and they see themselves as, you know, custodians of something that's very important. And, and for me, the restaurant business and hospitality profession you know, are just that, a profession and incredibly important and really worth, you know, improving and fighting for, you know. I think it's one of the most beautiful things that somebody can do with their life is to cook and to serve. I think it's incredibly humbling. I think it, it's an exhilarating feeling that you get from not only the sensation of creating from being the person to do something for the first time, but also and probably more the sense of creating something with a team that you feel very close and bonded to and then serving that to customers who have put their faith and their trust in you. And when it goes well and they love it, that, that exchange between us and our guests is why we do it every day. I'm, you know, there's more to it than that too, but, but that is something that is why it's kept me around so long, you know. Um, it's a beautiful feeling and I find in some ways I... You know, I fight to continue to earn the right to keep doing that, if that makes sense. You know, and I say earn because, you know, unlike, uh, let's say, an artist who paints a painting, you know, or even a band that gives a performance, other art forms, you know, that painting can, that can, that painting can hang on the wall for a few years and, like, the plate of food and the restaurant experience were only ever as good as that thing that you're making immediately and on the night or on the day. And then, you know, it doesn't, it, it, tomorrow is just a complete, it doesn't even matter about the day before, you know. Um, mm. You know, a band can make a record and they can live off that for a couple of years. I mean, it's pretty hard to live off a record these days, but um, you get what I'm saying, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Restaurant, restaurants perform every every single night, you know. It's, it's taxing, but you, you have to find those things that uh, matter to you and, like, give you that, that good feeling. It's not all yeah. going to be good, though, too, Kenneth, you know. In the next part of the podcast, Ben Shuri will reveal his favorite restaurants in Australia and the rest of the world.
so you're based in in uh, in in a part of Melbourne called Ripponlea. Uh, but if we talk about Melbourne, uh, if you'd have to describe Melbourne for someone or the restaurant and food scene, just a few like general uh, thoughts and comments about that, how would you describe Melbourne as a food city? Well, I would actually step back further off that and describe Melbourne as kind of a cultural and artistic epicenter of the country. You know, so yeah. that helps inform what the food scene is, you know. And and weirdly, not only sort of, you know, where the art is, but also where all the great sporting events are as well. And sometimes it's a kind of a unusual thing for those two things to coexist, um, but they do in Melbourne. And um and both those things influence the restaurant culture as well. I, I would describe Melbourne and the food scene in Melbourne as sophisticated. Um diverse and good on many levels uh which is actually quite a hard thing to say about a lot of other cities when i say you know that word that that concept of of the food in a city being good on many levels from from the lower price to the higher price you know some mm. cities you know are really fabulous at the high end or some cities are really amazing at the lower end or i guess not that many are, are fabulous at the mid end but but attica i feel like it's uh, not sorry attica um melbourne um does a good job on 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 a lot of different levels so you know describing it i mean you have the influence of many different groups of people who have migrated here so really diverse uh you know, you can eat amazing Vietnamese food. You can eat many different varieties of Chinese um, cooking. You can eat Greek food, Italian food, very good. Like one of the places that I recommend is, you know, there's a place called Trattoria Emilia, which is a little bit of a sleeper restaurant here. You know, I think it's a little bit of an underrated place. And if you go the midweek and you make a booking, <clears throat> you must ask if you can uh, reserve a, 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 a portion of the special that is on most of the time um, of tortellini and brodo, you know, the classic dish yep, from yep. Emilia Romana, the tiny little tortellinis in the broth. Now, I don't want to throw shade on Emilia Romana, but I was in Bologna and in, in Modena last year, and we ate a lot of tortellini and brodo in the summer sun, which I said is quite hard going. Uh, I at least eight bowls. Trattoria Amelia in Melbourne here, it was the best bowl I've ever had of it. It was on another level. And I've had it several times now. Okay. And so, in my opinion, that's a better bowl than I've had in Italy. Now, I'm not an expert on Italy, but, like, you know, it's an amazing bowl. I would say that is uh, <clears throat> actually a pretty good representation of kind of what can happen in Melbourne, where you can go to a country and have something... Um, and then you can come to a country where that culture is not necessarily not, not an original part of it. It's been, you know, a recent addition. It's come in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. Um, and find those those same dishes but done with as much integrity, not always, but often, you know. Um, mm, yeah. I think um, so there is a lot of very good Italian food here. There's a lot of, you know, pretty good Greek food. Um, it's a wonderful place to eat and it's a big city, you know, six million people here, and it's vast. So I would say to people coming here to get out of just the heart of the city. You know, Attica's in, in a suburb. There's a lot of gems everywhere throughout the city, and, and there's lots of neighbourhoods with 
uh, great food. There's great coffee everywhere. I mean, this is where you come if you want coffee. You know, if you like coffee in the world, this is the city to come. You know, I would go so far to say that this is the city that invented coffee pretty much. Now, the New Zealanders <laughs> crossed a ditch and Wellington will be will be um, screaming bloody murder. Uh, and, and Wellington does have great coffee too. Um, but... Uh, the, the the ease at which you can get a good cup of coffee here is ridiculous, you know. Uh, and when I say good, I don't just mean well-made, but I mean properly sourced. Yeah. That counts as well, you know, so responsibly sourced. Um, so, you know, it's it's it's... There's just so many things to enjoy here. It's like you're super spoiled, you know, um, and you can have almost anything you want. So, you know, actually, like, there's so much choice, I don't even know how to choose sometimes. So if we, we start in the morning, uh, where do you drink your, your coffee, favorite coffee places? Which would they be? Yep, so it's very easy. Uh, Market Lane, uh, a very responsible um, importer of green beans and roaster of beans, and it has... I don't know how many shops, eight to ten shops in Melbourne. So pretty much wherever you are, you'll find a Market Lane store. It's independently owned. It's a B corporation. Um, it's a tremendous business. If you're in the city, you could go to Market Lane as well. But I also really like Brother Babu Jan uh, in the CBD. Okay. It feels like a very Melbourne place to me. It It has delicious coffee, but it has a very cool little scene. You know, it's a place to like, Grab a cup and drink it quickly. It's not a place, it's not a cafe to sit around in, and you know, like they do food, but but the coffee is always great, and there's always kind of like a group of people like having their coffee there. It's a nice scene. Then actually, I I think that was quite a few years ago, but uh, there were actually uh, newspapers and magazines writing that Melbourne would have the best croissant in the world. Is that? Uh, do you think that's true? I think they were referring to to Loon Loon Bakery. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't think it's not true. I think it's one of the best croissants in the world for sure. I'm not a yeah. croissant connoisseur, but what it has sort of spawned it's maybe not the nicest term, um, but it has it it has raised. You know, Loon itself is absolutely excellent, and now has multiple locations, so it's easier than ever to get. Um, but it has spawned, like, I guess, almost like a kind of a generation of croissant makers. Yeah. Um, so I would say that Loon has lift, lifted the general standard of croissants in our city to an unprecedented level. And now I think you can get and there are other people making really good croissants as well. For example, in our neighborhood, we're pretty close by to us, a baker called Baker Blue makes a sourdough croissant, which is kind of darker baked and really flavorsome and a little heavier, but absolutely delicious you know so people take it you know this this um old dish you know from france that kate and um her team have taken and made something special in melbourne and other people have now kind of you know have taken the gift of, of that idea and done it in their own way so you can eat a diversity of croissants in melbourne <laughs> yeah the thing about melbourne is that there's always multiples you know like if i if i recommend a hamburger to you which i most certainly will You know, there's a variety of different hamburgers and different styles, you know. Uh, I'm yeah, not sure there's yeah. a Scandinavian-style hamburger uh, here, but but there probably is, you know. So uh, which hamburgers, which which would be your favorite once you mentioned it? The, the greatest Shoot. hamburger in the whole world. The great, Melbourne has the greatest hamburger in the entire world. 
Really? That's that's a true statement. Yes, in my okay. opinion. Um, please, please tell it's me. It's from uh, a hamburger shop that's been in the same family for about 70 years. It's called Andrew's Hamburgers, and it's in Albert Park in Melbourne. It's in a lovely sort of leafy uh, suburb, cl- quite close to the city. Also very close to South Melbourne Market. So South Melbourne Market in general is worth a food market. It's worth a, it's worth a visit. as a good coffee shop there too, Market Lane's there. But, but Andrew's is, um, it's an Australian hamburger. And in Australia, we eat a burger, which we call a burger with the lot. So a burger with the lot has a beef patty, has a sesame seed, sort of a fluffy bun, not like a... Not like a brioche bun, like a sort of a white bready, light sesame seed top bun. Um, it has slices of tomato, has lettuce, has cheese, has bacon, uh, has tomato sauce, um, has an egg, a fried egg. Oh, okay. Okay. Has has beetroot, <laughs> tinned beetroot, and has a slice of tinned and grilled pineapple okay well you have to add the pineapple on but that's how i order it so i order a i order a burger with a lot with beetroot and pineapple sometimes beetroot comes standard sometimes it doesn't uh and it's a real meal like it's a it's a pretty big meal you can imagine all those things in a hamburger um and that is a very traditional australian hamburger you can get a burger with a lot in any country town or any city hamburger shop or fish and chip shop it's more of a fish and chip shop hamburger actually, um, because it's an old it's an older dish, and Andrews just does it so well. It's all they do really. They do good chips too actually. But um, there's just some little tables on the street. It's a tiny little takeaway shop. Um, tell them I sent you. It it is I don't know. It's one of the best things you can eat in the city. Uh, it makes me happy. So happy to eat it actually. Like I ate it a few days ago. I don't have it that often. You know, it's like. You get older, you got to watch what you eat, Kenneth. But it, it's so delicious, um, okay. so pleasing to me. It's just deeply satisfying, you know. Um, and I, I, so I love to have that. It's just about my favorite meal. And all, all the years I've been having it, sort of grows on you and more and more and more. It's so incredibly consistent. It it's never bad. And uh, I think that that's a real remarkable thing. Yeah. So Andrew's hamburgers, my top top recommendation. Uh, what about uh, there's quite a few like uh, wine bars, bistros that like middle casual category. Any favorites in 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 that sector? There's so many. It's amazing actually. They have almost as many wine bars now as there is cafes now. Melbourne's known as the cafe capital of the world. It should be said, um, but it probably should be known also as the wine bar capital of the world. Um, there's so many, it's sort of hard to kind of name favourites, but um, I, I, I recommend one that I think is underrated, um, that that needs a, deserves a bit more love because it's excellent. It's called Vex Dining, V-E-X. Uh, it's owned by a front of house person and a chef, so it's independently owned and that's always going to be my recommendation. Um and the drinks are very good. There's a very good dry martini. There's excellent wine, of course, and the food is interesting. I think even the chef might have worked in Scandinavia. Um, and I don't know, it's delicious. There's lots of vegetables. I, I've been there twice recently. I thought it was great. So that's that's a good one. Um, 
other wine bars that I really like. Uh, I really like Napier Quarter on the north side of town. It's it's actually like a little slice of Europe almost. It's tiny. Okay. It's very cute. It has a very delicious anchovy dish. Again, it's great hospitality. You can sit on the streets. You can sit inside. It's very, very small. Um, Napier Quarter is a, is a good one. Um, any wine bar that uh, Andrew McConnell opens is pretty great. Um uh, he has one uh, on Gertrude Street next to his sort of flagship restaurant called Cutler & Co. The Marion Wine Bar by the chef Andrew McConnell is a favourite. Uh, you know, uh, Embla, Dave for Heels Place is an institution. There's, there's, there's more than I can probably mention, you know, and there's heaps that I haven't been to as well, especially on the north side of the city. I live in the south side of the city, so Melbourne's divided by the north and the south, by the river, and Attica's on the south side. Um, there's not as many wine bars on the outside of the town. I think that's good, really good for Melbourne. Any other places in, in Australia or elsewhere in the world that you would like to, to, to mention? Um, elsewhere in the world, for sure. I mean, as we were chatting just before we started this recording, I've just been on this trip with my 14-year-old daughter and my 19-year-old son in America. Um, and we ended up, after being in South Carolina, we ended up in New York City. And I went to the Union Square Cafe for the first time, which is a legendary restaurant, for those of you who don't know it, by yeah. the even more legendary restaurateur, Danny Meyer, who I greatly admire. Um, so we went there... Uh, for my son's birthday, and yeah, it's an older restaurant, I think from the 80s, maybe the 90s, I'm not too sure when he started it, it's his first restaurant, and Danny Meyer is, you know, the person that went on to found Shake Shack, uh, and countless other excellent restaurants, yep. but it was nice to go to where it started, um, and what was nice about it was, was that the company, Danny and his team, had not lost the love for their restaurant, you know, it was still a beautiful restaurant, And little things that I notice that might not matter to customers, but like how well the restaurant's maintained, is the paint scratched, you know, are they reinvesting in it? And so it's a really immaculate restaurant. It's kind of a, a little bit timeless. Um, they have these great salads. They have really good, you know, cold um, seafood. You know, I really enjoyed the pastas. I think it's something that they, they're known for. The food was excellent, like really professional. Uh, but the hospitality, and that is the thing he's renowned for, was just top-notch, you know, mm -hmm. so welcoming. They're excited that we're there. You know, customers, they want to feel like that, you know. Like you want to be made feel that you're special, that you matter when you come to a restaurant, you know. Certainly that's what we try to do at Attica. And I felt very much um, taken care of. And it was just really, really good true professional service and hospitality there and i think that's really admirable when you know the restaurant has been successful for 30 years and is in a city like new york that they haven't lost sight of themselves kenneth you know they know what's important it's harder to yeah. do than it looks you know and i love to go to some of these sort of historically important restaurants another restaurant in in New York City, I think, which is really fun and a very old restaurant too, is JG Mellon, which is renowned for its hamburger. Yeah. And it's it's a, it's a really good cultural experience. And it feels like a very New York experience to me to go to that place. I went there with the kids as well. 
we were mostly traveling you know and going to restaurants that they wanted to go to that they had seen on tiktok or they'd seen on youtube which is really you know unusual for a chef to be traveling with his kids and and to be influenced by the algorithm of the teenage you know internet um yeah. but jg mallon was a good experience and it's a delicious hamburger you know totally worth it anything else in in uh, in australia sydney or uh, elsewhere in in australia that that you you've been well well uh yes uh absolutely um in 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 victoria in the state that i'm from that melbourne is the capital city of victoria uh i absolutely adore this restaurant called du fermier uh it's run by the chef annie smithers mm-hmm. it's just annie in the kitchen and one or two people on the floor and annie has a really significant farm and is very committed to it and the farm is not tokenistic it's not window dressing it's very direct and very intentional it's not just a few herbs put on top to make it look pretty it's the real deal it's a very small restaurant it's only open for lunch maybe only four services a week um it's absolutely delicious it it's true to her you know i can when i talk to annie i can see how the food is represented in um herself and in her culture and just her history it's a it's a really mature restaurant you know things matter for example when i went there last we had a cocker van and we had it with a made from a rooster now that's very rare pretty much rare anywhere in the world you know and the cost of the rooster was just astronomical as an ingredient you know it was the finest rooster from a small local farmer mm-hmm. and she told me the cost and it was jaw-dropping you know and the menu is not expensive and um and so that's that sort of like you know kind of hyper local we'll put this on the menu at all costs kind of focus that i really admire it's not the sort of restaurant that big business could ever conjure up you know this is like hardcore independence um and you know a very simple very delightful place um yeah i i highly recommend do firm do firmier do firmier Ben, uh, we could keep on talking for uh, one or two more hours, but we'll have to uh, uh, finish this off uh, soon. Uh, one last question yes. for you. Um, if you would be able to uh, uh, close the restaurant for a few days uh, tonight and uh, pack your bags and travel um, anywhere in the world to a restaurant uh, and have a meal there, which, uh, which restaurant could that be? Oh, man, that's a tough question. One restaurant. Well, well, it's a two-part answer. Um, and one part is very chefy, like typical, like lots of chefs will say this, uh, but there's a reason for it. The first part of the answer is next month we're going to Sydney to see a rock show and we're going for dinner Um at Fire Door, Lennox Hasty's restaurant, which I'm very, very excited about. I've cooked with Lennox before. I think he's a great guy. I uh, love what he stands for. So I'm really, really excited about eating at Fire Door. Lennox was the head chef at Exabari. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. You yep. can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, about four or five years ago, we were in um, San Sebastian, and we had a booking at Exabari. Yeah, and the 
it was a lunch booking and I was with my head chef, Matt, our head chef, Matt, and some of our other staff and my wife, Kylie. And we were very, very excited about going to Exabari. And I got food poisoning. So did Kylie the night before. And we were chronically sick. It was terrible. Um, and we ended up eating Domino's pizza because we couldn't handle, you know, I don't know if you get, if this happens to you, but sometimes if, I get food poisoning quite regularly. Um, and you know, I, I'm really hesitant to blame the local food. You know, I don't think it's really like, I would say it's my foreign stomach. I can't handle it more than anything. Um, but we got sick and I couldn't stand the smell of hamon and, you know, all these things we've been eating so much of. So we ended up eating Domino's, <laughs> Domino's pizza. It was just terrible. It was terrible. Um, and I'm not a snob, but it was just, it, while my staff, while our team went to Exabari, <laughs> I couldn't go. We were so sick. So, uh, Exabari was the one that got away. Um, yeah. So perhaps it would be Ex- Exabari, um, but also like you know we were just in Penang in January, and Penang is just one of the world's great food cities in my opinion. And uh, it, you know just going back there to eat Shakwe Tao, you know the the noodle dish on the streets, um, or the road Shinai um, at the uh, Gamas. Um, Brothers Road, I think it's called. It's a Rodi Shanai place, uh, which is just an amazing cultural experience um, and the delicious food and just the loveliest people. So just even just going back to Penang, I know it's not a restaurant, but like, you know, you just spend all day walking around to eating in Penang. It's really remarkable. So this is a very rambling answer uh, okay. for you, Kenneth. Apologies. Okay. No worries. That's a good answer. Uh, I can stretch. never like get stuck on one thing. Like, yeah, I, I can never... I, if anybody asks me what the best is, I, I can't say, other than the hamburger, of course, I was very clear on that, um, very clear on that. Couldn't have been more clear about where the world's best hamburger is, Kenneth. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Uh, ben Shuri from Attica in, in Melbourne. Thank you. It was great talking to you and good luck with everything there. Thanks, Kenneth. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the Wall of Mouth podcast with Ben Shuri chef and owner of Attica in Melbourne. If you liked our podcast, please give it a star rating on the platform you're using now and let us know which chefs you'd like us to invite to the show. You'll find all of the recommendations mentioned in this episode and more in the Walla Mouth app, available in your app store, or visit our website at wallamouth.app. I'm Kenneth Nars, until next week with a new podcast guest.